against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus knows that it doesn't take much to get you discouraged. Jesus understands that within each of us, we have an overwhelming (laughs) propensity to just get down about things. Jesus understands that when it comes to following him, when it comes to praying for God's will to be done in the world and in our lives, that when we don't see what we want to see, our reaction is to become downcast. Jesus understands this. He understands this because he knows the human condition. He knows the human frame. And Jesus is helping his disciples and he's helping us by giving them this parable. How many of you get discouraged easily? Only a few. Man, you guys don't need this parable. (laughs) You guys come up here and teach me, right? All of us, right? All of us. And how hard is it when you're discouraged in something to keep at it? It's so hard. How difficult is it to keep at something when it feels like you're always failing? That's why Jesus speaks this parable to his disciples. Luke, the doctor, the physician, the historian who, who, who records this eyewitness account in verse 1 gives us, this is a great parable to preach because the whole point is given to us in verse 1. To what effect was this parable told? That we might what? Pray and not lose heart. Yeah, so that we might not what? That mean, Sorry, we might what? Pray and not lose heart. The whole key is in verse 1, right? It's right there. And Jesus is going to unpack it for us. So this is the big idea of this sermon of this text is to keep praying and do not lose heart because God's deliverance is on the way. Keep praying. Do not lose heart. When you lose heart, you become discouraged. You become down. You become beaten up. Keep praying and don't lose heart because God's deliverance is on the way. We're going to look at a couple things. The first thing uh, that we're going to look at is why we lose heart. Then we're going to look at the power for persisting. Then we're going to look at part of the reason for persisting. But first, why we lose heart. Here's why we lose heart. We lose heart because we do not have what we desire to have. We lose heart when we long to see something, and yet we don't see it. That's when we lose heart. Look at this widow. Jesus is going to do this in the text, right? Uh, So when you look at a text, I would encourage you to always, and you're looking at the text, you're studying it or looking at it briefly, to always read it two or three times out loud if you can, and you'll start to see the way it's organized. Look at the organization of this text. Uh, One is going to be Luke telling us what the text is about, and then two through, um, Josh, can you go to the next slide? Two through, two through five is the parable, and then look what Jesus does. Six through eight, he's going to apply it to us. 
He's going to give us the, the, the application and the explanation right there for us. Let's look at the parable. The parable involves who? Two characters, a blank and a blank, a who and a who, a judge and a what? Widow. Okay, so we get a judge and a widow in this parable. And what's happening with the widow? The widow wants something desperately. There is something she desires to have, and she doesn't have it. So she keeps coming to the judge, begging, persisting, asking, pleading, weeping, praying. She keeps coming and coming and coming. We don't know what it is that, that the widow is lacking, what's been taken from her, but she is begging, asking, pleading for justice. Part of this, this, uh, the context of this parable is as soon as widow is spoken and Jesus' disciples are there in their sandals and listening, standing there, they would immediately be drawn back to scriptures like this. Psalm 68.5, describing God, the, the psalmist says this, God is the father of the fatherless, protector of widows. That is his character. You go to Exodus 22, 22, you hear God describe how the, the widow, the, the foreigner, the oppressed are the ones that he wants his people to take care of. And he says, if you withhold justice from them, my wrath will burn against you. God loves the orphan, the widow and the foreigner because they are the most vulnerable. And God's heart breaks for those who are Pushed down and downtrodden. And the widow, if you are a widow in this society, you are at the mercy of people's compassion. And so we don't know what's happening with this widow. Maybe uh, her, her husband has left her and he's taken all the land and all the possessions. And see, she has no means of, 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 of a home, no means of working. We don't know if her son has been mistreated and, and he's put in prison or something. And she has no, no uh, material goods to pay for, pay for justice to be done or for him to be defended. All we know is that her livelihood is on the line. And she is so desperate that she goes and goes and goes longing to see what is broken set right. Justice, what is broken set right. That's what she's begging for. Now, if we think about this, uh, this idea of, of justice, we see justice described in two terms biblically. It has two flavors. You see, justice is described as punitive justice, that God is going to punish what is done wrong. But we also see justice in, a, in, a, in this sense, that it's rectifying justice. What is broken is set right. And when we think about this parable, Jesus is telling it and he's thinking of his disciples. He's thinking of you. He's thinking of his people in the place of the widow that he knows that there's going to be a time and a place after he resurrects that his people are going to be praying and asking for God to do things in the world, to do things in the church, to do things in their lives, to do things in their hearts. And they're going to pray and they're going to plead and they're going to beg and they're going to cry out and they're going to see nothing of what they desire to see. And we say, God, where are you? God, why aren't you moving? God, why aren't you working? Right? The church, God's people, we're like the widow crying out, when will things be set right? We long to see the kingdom of Jesus in this world go forward. See what's, set, uh, what's broken in our hearts set right. Right? Don't, 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 you, don't you long to see oppression removed from this world? Don't you long to see death removed from this world? How many of you have lost a loved one recently? Right? You long to see death removed from this world? We long to see hatred removed from this world? Right? That's, that's a, that's, you may not know that. If, you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you may not know that. But that is a desire for the kingdom of God to be brought to earth. 
fully. When God sets all things right. Maybe uh, you long to see the day when Jesus' church is united, is, is strong, and is, is growing. Where people in, in hordes and droves come and say, I didn't even know anything about Jesus. Or I hated Jesus. And now I see Jesus and I love Jesus. That is a kingdom desire to see God's church flourish and to see people know the love of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe it's this. Don't you long for the day when your devotion and love for Jesus and the things of God, that love and devotion never wavers. We actually grow in your love for Jesus instead of feeling like you take steps backwards. That's a desire for the kingdom of God to, to increase for your love for Jesus to, to grow in you. And God desires that. And we do as well in many ways. And yet we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray. And when we don't see those things happen, we lose heart. And after a while, when you lose heart, what do you, what do, you do? You stop praying. Or your prayers become infrequent. Or your prayers become dry. Or you begin to pray small. You pray small, manageable things. Because you don't want to feel disappointed anymore. But Jesus didn't call us to follow him so that we'd live discouraged. He called us to follow him so that we would know him, have his salvation, and live out his kingdom in this world. So he gives us this parable. And we're going to see that the power for persisting is in verses 6 through 8. Look at the widow. She persists in her pleading. Why? Why does she keep persisting? How many of you like being rejected? No one likes being rejected. Right? So what is it that keeps her going? Rejection after rejection after rejection. She continues to go to this wicked judge. I mean, I have, I have such a hard time. Uh, let me tell you this. This is an antidote, not in the notes. Okay? Um, I needed a cab in New York City for a church conference. I sometimes, my wife will testify this, sometimes I just hate asking for things. So I just kind of like stood at the corner like hoping a cab would see me and that they would know they would stop. And then after I was like, I'm going to be late for my conference. So I was like, I'm going to have to put my hand up and kind of impose on them to get a cab. Like I was like, walk, I like walked around the block. Like maybe they'll notice the guy standing on the corner needs a cab in a city of what, 8 million people, right? But aren't you like that sometimes? You just hate asking for things. Especially if you know you're going to be rejected or you've been rejected before by the person. You're going to come back and ask again. But she keeps going and going and going. What is it that pushes her to ask, to persist? Well, it's clear that the widow persists in her pleading not because of the character of the judge. Look at, look at the text. It's not because of the character of the judge. What do we see? That the judge is what type of person? He is a wicked judge. Verse 2 who neither feared God nor respected man. You know what that means? Most people do one or the other. They at least got one of those two things. He has no regard for God. He has no reverence or worship towards God. And he also doesn't respect people. Do you know what this means? This means he doesn't care about what God thinks, and he doesn't even care about his reputation. Most people are are, are motivated by the grace of God to live graciously and kind to others. Or if they don't have that, they're at least motivated by the fact that I want to be known as a nice person, so let me be nice. This judge doesn't care what you think of him, so he's going to be crooked and, 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 and just twisted and wicked. And he also doesn't care about God, so he's going to do his thing. This is a wicked judge. The only way you're getting your case pushed forward through him is if you're coming with a, a couple Franklins or Benjamins in your pocket to slip under the table. This is a wicked judge. 
And so what leads the the widow to persist is not the character of the judge, but because she knows what she is pleading for is good and right. That's the power for her persistence. She knows what I'm asking for is a good and right thing. So I'm going to keep asking because this is my livelihood and it is right and good. What's the power for persisting in prayer for the disciple of Jesus? What's the power for persisting in prayer for the Christian who is praying and praying and been praying and been asking God, help me with my finances, help me with my character, uh, help my friend come to know you, Jesus, help our church, help the world, help the city, help my dad, help my sister. What is the power for persisting in prayer for the disciple of Jesus who is losing heart? What's the power that recharges someone who has already lost heart? To the point that their prayers have no pulse. What's the power? Well, Jesus shows us in verse 6. The power for persisting in prayer is the character of God. It is both the understanding and the belief, biblically informed, about the character of God. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6. He's going to use uh, his favorite paintbrush, contrast. Look at what he says. He has just explained a parable about the judge. And this judge, look at verse 4. He refused for a while, but afterward he said to himself, I need, Though I neither fear God nor what people think of me, yet because she keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. And then 6. Jesus, This is Jesus' contrast. He's making a contrast between the judge and God. In verse 6, he says, The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. So he's basically saying, look at the character of the unrighteous judge. And then 7, will not God give justice to his elect? He's, he's holding up two different people with completely different depictions of character. Jesus is not saying, hey, God is like the wicked judge. He's saying God is completely different from the wicked judge. Therefore, you ought to persist. Think of it this way. If a wicked judge will do what is right after persistent pleading, How much more will the God of all grace do what is right when he hears pleading from his children? If persistent prayer leads a wicked judge who is cold-hearted with no care for his reputation to do what is right, how much more effective will persistent prayer be to the God who desires to give his children the kingdom of God? as Jesus teaches previously in Luke 12. How much more will the prayers to a father who cares be more effective than a wicked judge who you have to bribe? Jesus' point is trying to bring us to see the character of God. And what he's trying to do is he's trying to empower us. He's trying to put courage into us. He's trying to draw us to our knees to pray to God without losing heart because we know the character of our Heavenly Father. He's good, He's gracious, and He's for us. But at the same time that this encourages us to pray by showing us the character of God, this is also Jesus sort of holding up a mirror that shows us that our lack of persistence in prayer is the result of a lack of understanding and belief about the character of our Heavenly Father. As 
there's a story about this that, that's relevant. Um, not the story about this, but a, 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 a historical account in the, in the Old Testament, First Samuel, um, Samuel, prophet of God, uh, his mom, Hannah. And who's, who was, has no children, she's desperately praying for a child. And she just prays and prays and prays. She goes to the temple and she prays. She prays so persistently, so passionately, so, uh, so with her soul on her sleeve that, that, that the priests and the people of the temple, they think that she's drunk. Like this drunk woman that just keeps coming and crying. They just think she's just a frantic person. Like, oh, wait, actually, she's praying. She's praying passionately and persistently. What keeps her praying like that and going on and on? It's the character of God. God is good. God is right. God is just. I'm going to bring my prayers to him persistently because I know he hears and he cares and he will work in his timing. So really, when it comes to persisting in prayer, when it comes to persisting in anything and following Jesus, but particularly prayer, the question is, not so much do you know the technique to pray, do you pray like this, or things that are helpful, but it's do you really know the character of God? See, here's, here's the thing that's, that's kind of tricky is that we can know Jesus, be saved by Jesus, trust in salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, not in our own goodness. And yet our picture of God in our minds can be kind of off. Some of us, we love Jesus, we know Jesus, I'm trying to cast doubt on that, but some of us, we relate to God like he's the wicked judge. Some of us relate to God like he is truly our Heavenly Father that cares for us. Some of us, sometimes we, we slip into relating to God as if he's kind of God in the distance. Based on your persistence in prayer, which, which might you be? Which might you be slipping into right now that God wants to draw you back home to him as heavenly father. If you, uh, I want to show you the difference a little bit. If you believe God is off in the distance, this, this is what this might look like. And if this, is, if this is you being encouraged, God is helping you. If this isn't you, don't, don't, don't own it, don't wear it. But this is what it might look like if, you, if you're believing that God is off in the distance, is that you don't really persist in prayer unless things are really bad. And your, your main prayer language, if you, if you relate to God as if he's off in the distance, your main prayer language is worry. That's the way that you, you pray most of the time is worry. And worry is really just praying to yourself, right? You're just kind of giving it in your brain over and over and over and just running through everything, right? So if we believe that God is off in the distance, we're going to find that the way that we pray the most is actually going to be to ourselves in the form of worry. Because we know God is good. We know that in our hearts. We know that he's true. We know that he's for us. We've seen what he's done in Christ. But it just feels like he's just kind of removed. But the invitation is from 1 Peter 5, 7 is to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. Sometimes we'll drift into relating to God as if he's the cranky, wicked judge. And, and when we do this, our disposition, uh, our thoughts towards God is, is this. We, we think God is primarily angry. And that we have to do things or pray enough or pray in a certain way to, to kind of get him back in our corner. It's easy to slip into this, Right? You might see this uh, manifested in, in thinking like, man, you, you may not say it, but you might think, man, God is, God is mean in the Old Testament and he's nice in the New Testament. Right? These, these things where we just kind of got a, a warped picture of God. And if we have a warped picture of God, we're going to have warped prayers and, and then we're going to really just lose heart. But that's not who God is. 
Jesus showing us the heavenly father that cares for us. Psalm 97, 2 says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. And when we understand who God is, in prayer, we persist. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. That means it's his essence. That strikes at his very character. But even as we hear that, we might ask this. If righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne, then where is he? Then how come this stuff is happening in my life? Then how come more people don't know and love Jesus? Then how come our church isn't growing rapidly? Then how come my marriage is falling apart? How come all I see on TV is death and dying and decay? They do that for the ratings. A 24-hour news cycle, you've got to have something, right? So, so we'll let God off the hook of that one. Right? But we might ask these questions, why? If God is righteous and just, why? Why in the church do I see this? Why in the world do I see this? Why in my life do I see this and not this? Why? Where is he? Those are good, those are good questions. If you're asking, these are good questions. It's Okay. Well, the, the first thing we ask, where is God? Well, God already showed up. God entered into our mess through Christ. Right? As we read this, we have to understand the person teaching us is God in the flesh who left his throne in heaven to come walk among us. That there was a mess on earth and Jesus came clean up on aisle earth and he arrived. And he came. To deliver us from our sin. To restore us back to God the Father. And one day he's going to set all things that are wrong right. So, so we have to understand that, that God has come. He's entered into the mess. But we still, we still want to wrestle with this question. Where is God if he's just and he's good? Where is he? Well, here's the thing. God is unfolding his plan of redemptive history. He's unfolding his plan of redemption right now. We're standing in the middle of it. It's a long movie, and we are right in the middle of that story. And so we ask, where is he? Well, he's all around us working. The reason we ask, where is he, is because we want the end credits to roll right now, but we're still in the middle. And it's a good desire to want that, but we also got to understand where we are in the story and see this, that when we understand the character of God, we understand he's good, he's just, he's true, but he's also working in a different context than we are. Because God is eternal. See, God is playing in the sandbox. He is redeeming and he is working in the sandbox of eternity. In all human history. He's working out his plan. He's working out his purposes. He has a vantage point that we don't have. And the sandbox that we're playing in is is 70 years. And so when you look at things from a perspective of 70 years versus the perspective of all human history and the unfolding plan of the whole world and the cosmos, man, that's two different timelines, right? That's completely different. And so to us, things that seem slow seem slow, but to God, he's looking at the whole scope of human history. There's a book that, are, that are, the, uh, some of our ladies are reading uh, Jen Wilkin, None Like Him, the uh, book for the Women's Theology Study, an incredible book, and she has an illustration that she uses in, in the chapter on, on God's eternity and his nature, and she uses the illustration from her kids that, that in kindergarten the teacher teaches them that you know today is Monday, tomorrow's Tuesday, the day after is Wednesday. And then the, the next day uh, she teaches them that again, so today's Tuesday, tomorrow's Wednesday, and, and they're like, no, no, T- you said yesterday, you said yesterday that tomorrow's Tuesday, and then today you said tomorrow's Wednesday. And they just freak out. 
Right? They, they just don't understand time in the same way. Right? You see this with little kids. Tell my son, we can do this in five minutes. Then we'll come back in one second. Can we do it? Like, no. Just five minutes. Five. Count to one. Someone do math. Count to one. I don't know how many times. But more than that. Right? Our, just, our sense of time is just so different. And so it's okay that we have these longings, but then we need to understand, hey, God is operating in the scope of all eternity. Right? Look, Second Peter encourages, with, encourages us with this as he's writing to a suffering church. Second Peter 3, 8, 9. Do not overlook this one fact. If we overlook this, we will be discouraged. So do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years as one day. Then Peter says this, knowing he needs this, knowing that we need this, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Things may seem slow to us because God is trying to, if God is working about, he's not trying, he's working about his purposes and plan that are going to benefit people outside of us. You might ask, man, God set everything right now. Set the world right now. Fix me. Fix the world. Fix my day. Like, set this thing right now. I'm tired of this death, this decay, this, this hate. I had to go through two racially profiling things this weekend in New York. New York for two days, two of those. I hate that. I want that to be done. Set right. Why not now, God? Why not now? Well, he's pushing that forward. He's working now. This is an excuse for, for us to not work and for him not working. He is. But he is being slow because he's bringing more people into the kingdom of God. The kingdom is going forward. God's movement is happening. He's good. He's gracious. There's no one like him. So in prayer, we persist because of who God is. Now, you, you might ask this question, which is a good question. Well, isn't this just nagging God? If you ever, if you ever tell someone you, you're kind of naggy, right? Isn't that one of the, like, the biggest insults you can give someone? It's like, you're kind of naggy. You nag me a lot. Right? That is, that is a, a shot to, to the heart. Those are fighting words, right? So, so w- w- why? Why does he want us to persist? Why doesn't he just answer? Well, one is his, his timing. But, but the second thing is this, is if God answered every prayer that we prayed according to our timing and our desire, we would begin to treat him like an ATM. There would be no relationship. There would just be transaction. And, and I want you to think about this personally. How many things have you prayed for that in the years that passed, you're like, thank you, God, that you did not do what I asked? Right? If you live long enough, you realize, wow, like that would have been so bad. I prayed for that. I'm not going to tell you guys. Some of the things I prayed for, I'm just like, thank you, God. This did not happen to me. You're so kind. Right? So, so part of this is if God is, is working with, with divine wisdom, in his divine wisdom, there are things that we're going to want so badly that he's going to know, like, if I give you that, it is going to destroy you. It will crush you. I have a prayer journal from 2009 tracking all things in, in my life, uh, which is not impressive because I've been along longer than 2009, but I started late. So I have this journal just tracking prayer requests. And there's things that I prayed for in there that are good and right desires in line with God's will. But if God gave them to me, I wouldn't be able to handle them. Praying for our college ministry. God, save thousands of people. Do all this stuff through my ministry. Do this, da, da, da. 
I couldn't handle that at that time. Maybe not ever. What would happen to my pride? What would happen to my ego? Right? So there's certain things that God's going to do good for those people according to his will. But he knows that can't come through me because that would destroy me. So we have to understand that it's not just as simple. God didn't do what I want. He doesn't love me. I, he loves you. The proof is the cross. So, so maybe he's doing something loving by delaying the answer to help you and to help them in a different way. So, so God is calling us to persistence, not for his sake, but for our sake, because if he gives us what we want right away, we might treat him as an ATM. We would lose the relationship. And here's the thing. When we persist in prayer with God, do you know what happens to our relationship with him? It deepens. It deepens. The Apostle Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 12, that he had a thorn in his flesh described as a, a messenger of Satan. We don't know exactly what it was. It might have been an illness. It, it might, we don't know what it was. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And did God answer his prayer? The apostle Paul, did God answer his prayer? No. You know what God said to him? He said, my power is perfected in your weakness. And so do you know what Paul got? He didn't get an answer to prayer. He got something better. He got a deeper intimacy with God. So we have to have that on, on our minds and on the table as well. We persist in prayer when we recognize who God is and his character. But then Jesus says something in seven that maybe popped out to you. He uses a word that we don't use a word a lot, elect. We use it for things that we're going to do, which we're going to do on Tuesday. Pray for us all, right? We're going to elect somebody, right? Man, like this election, bro. The week, I just called you guys all, bro. Um, the week, next, uh, next Sunday, man, we're going to need more chairs out here because... Something's going to happen when people are like, we need Jesus. And it's going to be revival in the city of Boston. Right? We use the word elect in terms of something that we're going to do. We don't use it to describe ourselves. But Jesus is going to look out upon you and he's going to say, hey, God is going to give justice to his elect. Why? Why does he say that? If you read the New Testament for like four minutes... You will find this word everywhere. Elect, chosen, called, predestined. You're going to see this everywhere. And what we do is we, we turn it into this debate. I'm like, well, God's this. Ah! And we just yell. But God teaches it to show us two things. That he's in control of all things. That our decisions and responsibility matter. And that this word ought to comfort us. That's why he uses it here. He's trying to get you to understand salvation is not just because of you and some decision you made. It's part of God's eternal purpose and plan for you. You're called into it. So trust Jesus. But he uses this word to comfort you. He's going to tell you, Jesus is trying to teach us. You need to not only persist in prayer by remembering who God is, but you persist in prayer by remembering who you are. God shows you. God loves you. God cares for you. God has purposes for you. And when you remember that, you persist. Remember hearing a story about a friend and an adopted child, um, and and uh, they adopted this this boy, and he started going to school, and and then they they got the you know the the, the meeting with the teacher parent teacher conference. They have that, and uh, like man, he's he's so great in school, but he's caused a little bit of trouble. So parents are like, well, how did he cause trouble? Well, he keeps going around telling all the kids that my daddy loves, loves me the most. He chose me, but your daddy's stuck with you. <laughs> it's because he's like, I, I've been adopted. Or this is a kid who had nothing, right? This kid has nothing. And then he finds out this family came to the orphanage 
They saw me and they 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 picked me. Right? This kid who's just in a in a cage like an animal. And then he finds out there's two people who want him. He's like, you guys can't tell me anything. My daddy chose me. I know he loves me. Now, Jesus isn't calling us to do that, but he's saying, when you understand, he's like, Jesus chose me. Actually, if you understand that, that God has sovereignly chose you, he loves you that much, it brings you to the dust. In humility, but it lifts you to the sky with confidence because it says, man, I can pray and pray and pray and not see an answer. But I know that God loves me so much that it wasn't just my decision alone, but that he had a purpose for me. He chose me. This is, Jesus is telling us not for this for, for us to get into debates, but that so we can be comforted. Man. For us to be comforted. By the knowledge that God loves us this much, that God loved us before we loved him. That's what he's trying to say. Keep at it because God loved you before you loved him. God loved you when you were running wild. God loved you when you rejected him. God loved you when you were going crazy in the club, whatever you were doing. God loved you before you loved him. So we persist in prayer as we remember who God is, but also as we remember who we are in the sight of God. One of the things that makes it hard to persist in prayer is not only the, the process of praying and praying and praying and praying and not seeing an answer and waiting, but also praying and praying and praying and seeing a clear, unanswered prayer, a no, a rejection. You, you pray, you pray, pray, God, heal this person. They don't get healed. God, pray, pray, do this. Help me get into the school. Help me, help me pay my bills and you get evicted. God, pray, pray, pray. And you just see, you see the prayer, not just like you're waiting in limbo for it to load and for it to manifest, but you see it rejected almost, unanswered. What do you do with that? That is hard. And some of us have wounds that we're still carrying from prayers that have not been answered. The Bible calls us to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. But the Bible also encourages us to do this, is to take the wounds and disappointments of our unanswered prayers to the foot of to the foot of the cross. Is that when we come to the foot of the cross, we we begin to see that there is an answer to the question of unanswered prayer. Unanswered prayer whispers a lie in, into our ears, into our wounds. It says God is not good. God does not care. God has forsaken you. But the cross shouts to us in love that God is exceedingly good because he saved you. God is exceedingly good because he's given his son in your place for your sins. He does care for you because he's given you the greatest thing that he could himself. So that you could be his now and for all eternity. Cross is the answer to our unanswered prayers, our most enduring need. So because of this, Jesus says this, persistent prayer. Don't lose heart. God has a plan and a purpose, and part of his plan and purpose is your prayers achieving things. Your prayers are part of that story. Pray, don't lose heart. Be encouraged. And then he gives us this last portion in closing, that we persist in prayer because our God will also deliver I don't know if you guys pay any attention to baseball. I pay attention to baseball for about two weeks every year in mid-October. The games are too long for me to pay attention any other time. But there's a big thing that happened in baseball. The Chicago Cubs won the World Series. 
You're like, we don't care. Well, <laughs> I'm going to tell you about it anyway. Um, they, these people waited for 108 years to win something. Now, this made no, no deal to me. I love Cleveland for various reasons, so I wanted Cleveland to win. And then I kept seeing these pictures of like these grown men with their children in Cubs jerseys just in utter agony when the Cubs were losing in the, in the final game. And I started to realize, like, this means a lot to these people. This means a lot to this city. Their parade celebration that happened, I think, uh, late back half of last week, I think was like the seventh largest championship celebration or something celebration in the, in the history of sports or the world or something crazy. And, and it was just this horde of people. It's like, this meant a lot to these people. Now, now, do you think, now that 108 years of waiting for a championship, now that that has been achieved, that deliverance has come, do you think there's anybody that's a, that's a fan of Chicago uh, the Cubs that has been watching with their great-grandfather and their, their father watched with his father and, and there's just lineage passing on? Do you think any of them is, is today is thinking about 2003 when they lost in the, the round before the championship, saying that was so horrible? think any of them is thinking of 1998, right, when, when they lost 112 games or something like that? No. Why? Why? Why are they not looking back on all of those hard times? Why? Because the deliverance has come. You can't tell them anything now that they got this championship. Chicago people are going to be so annoying now that they got this championship. You won't be able to tell them anything because deliverance has come. And Jesus is trying to point us to that as well when he uses this phrase, the son of man. He's pointing us to uh, other places in the Bible, in the book of Daniel, to this idea that one day he's going to return literally, visibly, physically to hold us all to account, to usher in the kingdom of God fully as heaven comes down to earth and all things are renewed. And he's telling us that human history is not aimless. Our lives are not aimless. There is a destination that is good through Jesus. And that deliverance is coming. And so persevere because... The king is on the way. The king is on the way. We're not in the middle of Christians of all people. If if we believe Jesus is is coming, as he says in in verse 8, to renew and redeem all things, then we can persevere because we know that the victory is won and the end is coming and the end is near. And actually every single day, every single minute, every single second, we take one step forward to this world being set right. It feels like God's plan in the world is moving in the slow lane to us. But Jesus says it's coming quick. It's coming speedily. So Christians who understand that Jesus is going to come and set all things right. They're able to persist and persevere because deliverance is on the way. They're able to not lose heart because the king is coming. Because Jesus is is on the move. And Christ's whole point in everything that he's teaching here is so that we would pray, 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 pray with persistence without losing heart. Because we know who God is. We know his character. We've seen it through the cross. And we know that the king is coming to set all things right. And our prayers, Everything that we desire that is right and that is good, according to God's wisdom and timing, will be fulfilled in him. So it says pray. Don't lose heart. A couple ways you can practically go about this is to encourage one another when God is working through your prayers. So it's a role that the church gets to play. Is One of the ways we don't lose heart is when we share with one another, hey, I prayed for this and God didn't answer, but he gave me something better. He helped change my character even though he didn't change my circumstance. If that happens to you, share it. Man, that's encouraging. You're going to help somebody else not lose heart. When you have an, a prayer that is answered, share it. 
That is going to encourage somebody. Another way to do this is to keep a prayer journal. Keep track. I can go back to specific weeks. I can think of, I was looking at it uh, last night, going back to April, uh, April 30th of 2014 when I was really down about church planting. And that week, do you know how many things God did in that week to encourage me in the work of church planting? Five random, random stories with people that I just interacted with. That some of those people have been just huge blessings part of the church. Some of those people I've talked to a few times and never seen again. But God worked through that week and I have a tangible thing that I look back to in addition to the beauty of the cross to encourage me that God is faithful. So maybe consider recording your prayers and share answered prayers with one another in your gospel community and just in relationship. But even as we're called to not lose heart, we, we must recognize this in closing. That losing heart is still really easy. But I want us to see Christ in this way. That we trust in the one who has not lost heart for us. But you understand that Jesus is talking about not losing heart as somebody who had every reason himself to lose heart. He prays in the garden before he goes to the cross with anguish that he's going to be crucified. But he trusts the character of God that through the cross, good would come. The salvation of all who trusted him. He didn't lose heart. He stored down a brutal death without losing heart. He, he absorbed the sin of all who would trust in him without losing heart. He endured nails through his hands without losing heart. Do you understand, even before he goes to the cross, do you understand everything that happened to Jesus that would have caused any of us to lose heart immediately? One, he's rejected in his hometown. I mean, I mean you got to think about this, right? The people that should at least love you in the world would be the people that know you the most. At least you feel like, I can go back home and those people know me, right? They know me since I was a pampers. He's rejected in his hometown. His family thinks he's crazy. He's in the middle of his ministry. His family, his, his brothers, his sisters, they disown him. His disciples, his closest friends, they constantly fail to see him who he is. One of the closest betrays him. Then his disciples, at his moment, his most anguishing moment before he goes to the cross, where do, are his disciples by his side, holding him up, with him, encouraging him? No, they leave. They run away. They say, Jesus, you're on your own. This is getting bad. We're only here to be with you when things are great. They leave. One of them renounces him right there. Peter denies him. Not only that, Jesus is constantly on the run from religious leaders trying to kill him. As he's a small baby, the king, Herod, does what? Executes all of the baby boys in Jerusalem because he knows that a king is coming. Jesus has been running for his life since he was in Pampers. Do you see all the reasons he has to lose heart? He's the product of an unjust court system. You know, when they bring him to trial, do you know what they're convening? Court at 2 a.m. We don't do that. They, they don't do that then. We don't do that now. He's a product of an unjust, crooked system. But he doesn't lose heart. Then he walks to the cross. Carrying it as far as he can. And is nailed to it. Bearing our sins. And he does it without losing heart. He endures for us. That is the love of God for you. Now understand this. When we trust in him, he dwells in us by his spirit. And when we trust in the one who endured for us, and he dwells in us by his spirit, we have power to endure. We have power to persist. 
And where we fail to endure and persist, God has grace for us. And when we're able to endure and persist, it's because of his grace helping us. Jesus is on the move. Be encouraged. Pray. And don't lose heart.